0: anticipation growing now you just can't wait can you all right i know like you never know what's gonna happen here at park springs bible church that's what we love so uh as they're getting uh, a music stand for me so i can put my stuff down because i can't not use my hands uh let me pray for us we're we're jumping in um, we've been walking through or started mark johnson did a great job last week starting us off on our series called 40 and the reason is is it was sort of preparation not sort of it was or is preparation for lent and in the, in the process of that, we realized that what Mark did last week was just a great job in talking to us about how 40 in the Bible uh, was an indication for a time of testing. And we see it with utter regularity throughout the context of the Old and New Testament. And so what we wanted to do is kind of move into to the reality of what that means and what, what God is doing in our lives in the midst of tr- trials. And, and how we even process or internalize or digest struggles in the midst of our life and i'll tell you that often in the context of my own life and i would imagine many of you that we we see or we have a hard time or different categories for for processing difficulties that we've been through in the context of our lives whether it's trauma or suffering some level of challenge in our lives we go in multiple different ways one of it is we feel like there's some level of punishment for what we've done or we feel like there's some level of God pulling away and, and trying to, to, to show us how, how wrong we are. and We end up getting fairly discouraged in our walk with the Lord. And so as we walk through this series on 40, what we really want to do is realize that, that times of testing, there's, there's unique realities of what take place in each of those things for us to discover the work of the Lord and to see how deeply He's, he's moving us and where He's moving us to. And so when Mark did last week just a, a great job as he stood up and talked about the story of Jonah, and the reality of that, that 40 of testing that took place in Jonah's life was exposing misplaced motives in his heart the reality of of this contrast between someone who would be described as a follower of god running from god and then reluctantly being obedient to god and then this story of the ninevites getting transformed by the power of god who were those that were you you would you would guess would not want to be or that you wouldn't want saved i mean they were the kind of the worst of the worst in the world at the time and, and then their hearts are changed, and there's this 40 days of, of communicating the, the truth of God's work, and they repent, and God relents from disaster, and then you get this other exposure of, of Jonah at the end of the day, where he comes and he's frustrated. He did the work of God, and he knew that God was compassionate, and he was mad that God saved him. So in the midst of that testing, that trial, what you get a chance to see is that there was a, a level of... Of inadequacy, if you will, or a struggle in Jonah's heart where he was comfortable the great, with the grace that he had received for himself, but he was uncomfortable with the radical grace dispensed on others. And, and there was this place and this recognition that, that he, even at the end of, of, of the book, that he was just struggling with, I would, you should just take my life because I don't, I don't want to do, that. if this is who you are, I'm not sure that I even want to understand the ramifications of, of the impact of who you could save. And so that trial that, that God put him through was a way for him and, and for, for him to see what God sees in his own heart. But that's not the only thing that happens in the midst of testing. There are other aspects that come out in these levels of trial that we see. And so we're going to jump into the story of Noah this morning. And I think there's going to be some unique contrast to what happens in the midst of Noah's specific trial that I think are going to be very pertinent for us. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 initially and and kind of go to a a couple of different places. But let me pray for us as we jump in to Genesis chapter 6. Lord, we come to you with the recognition of the fact that you are God and we are not. You have ordered your world. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the one who has created and designed and fashioned us. So I pray that this morning as we encounter maybe a a well-known story that has been a a part of our journey ever since we can imagine being young or we've heard it numerous times, I pray that we would encounter the impact of this story in in a fresh way, that your Holy Spirit would do a, a deep and mighty work in us and we would see what you want us to see, that you would be the instrument of changing us in radical and significant ways as we look at your word. Your word tells us that that there's a reality of what your word does, that it convicts and and encourages and changes and, and rebukes. All of these things are things that we anticipate as we open your word. And so I pray that our hearts would be open and willing to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So let me just kind of set the scene a little bit. I think most of the time as we encounter the story of, of the flood and Noah, most of the details of what we have are a big ark, a lot of animals, a rainbow, and life is good. Right? I mean, there's just, it, it sort of remains in that kind of childhood story where we find ourselves experiencing this, this huge, catastrophic, worldwide flood, and, and Noah's preserved outside of everybody telling him he's foolish for trusting in God, and, and God preserves him and saves him and there's all these animals and they're going in two by two and he builds this huge ark and then at the end you have this raven that comes out and then this dove and then all of a sudden God shows this rainbow and the rainbow just gives us this indication that this will never happen again as a as a display a physical tangible display of God's promises I want to suggest to you this morning that the story of Noah in the flood is not about an ark It's not about animals, and it's not about a rainbow. The essence of the story is about the heart. There's two hearts. It's the tale of two hearts, if you will. The heart of God and the heart of man. And as we encounter this story, what tends to bubble to the surface, if we just really enter into it, like if we've never read it before and see it for the first time, you get a level of emotions from God himself that begin to kind of pour out that that set the stage for the situation that's taking place across the board so universally is there these things that are going on and God gives descriptors of the situation of mankind and his response to it so if you're there let's jump into Genesis chapter 6 and I just want to read a couple verses uh, verses 5 through 8 at this point and uh, just get a, a sense of, of how this scene is set. So Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, said it, say this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted, and I'm going to come back and, and explain what that means, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things and birds of heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in his eyes. So here's the situation. Things had gotten so bleak after creation. You get Cain and Abel, you get murder, you get blood spilling, you get all of these things where there's just a constant progression of sin that's running rampant in the context of human experience and it got so bad that what what we're told in this text is that they didn't even have a sense of what was sin and not sin right the bible tells us that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually so there was a sense in which We think about creation and Adam and Eve, and and everything was perfect, and God's creation was good. He declared it as such, and then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and and then there's this progression of sin just continuing to grow worse and worse and worse, and that's the, the reality of what sin does. It always shows you the bait, but never the hook. Right? That you end up getting caught up in the reality that we start to minimize the gravity of sin, hardness in our heart grows, and so sin just becomes normal. There's just an experience where this is just what life is. It's interesting because as I was looking through the the Bible and and as, as the story of Noah comes up continually, there are numerous places in the context of the scriptures where the story of Noah and the flood is revisited. And so what that does is that gives us lenses and eyes from which to see how to understand the fullness of the story itself. Interesting that Jesus actually refers to this story. He actually helps us understand, as he's sort of talking about signs at the end of the age, and all of this stuff that's going to be taking place when we think about the end times, he refers... To an understanding of the story of Noah in the flood that I think is very intriguing. So let's jump to Matthew. If you got your Bibles open, if not, it'll be up on the screen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. So Jesus is going through all of these indications of things that, that would mark our understanding of what's happening at the end of the age. Because there is a level, even in the disciples' life, of curiosity of where all of this is leading. The same curiosity you and I face. We look at our world, and we're like, okay, how close are we before it's all gone and we're with you forever? And so Jesus is unfolding that, and look what he says in verse, chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Here it is. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. Okay, so maybe not the most intriguing thing in all the world, but here's what he's saying. He's communicating that there was such a level of just doing life. Just the nitty-gritty details. They They were marrying, they were having children. They were just living as though nothing was really wrong. There was no sense in their lives or in their heart that anything was amiss. Sin had so entrenched itself in their experience that categories for sin no longer existed. It had gotten to the point where the Bible even describes a focus on the heart of man. And what does he say? All they thought was evil thoughts continually. Right? The, the thought and perspectives of who God was and what God was and what God was doing all had been lost. Why? Because sin always shows you the bait and never the hook. There's always that place where it just continues to progress into worse and worse and more and more. Sin is never satisfied. It always kills. It always destroys. It always breaks and fractures things. There's not a place where we can have sin as a companion and expect that it's not going to be destructive in the context of our own human experience. And so, that's a great popular message this morning, is it not, right? We're going to build the church on, we're all a bunch of rotten people. But, but it's true in the sense that there has to be a reality that the human condition is prone to move towards their own definitions of what they want, what they like, and what they desire. And so there's this longing inside each of these humans that are there that are finding satisfaction in just doing life and doing life without god dostoevsky who's a, a russian writer in his book called the brothers karamazov says this he said with god anything is possible without god everything is permissible Boy, that's true, right? I mean, there is that sense that if we're able to move away and just distance ourselves from God's ordered world, there's no limitations as to how bad we can make things. We look at our world and we say, things are pretty rugged now. Without God, things would be infinitely worse. And so when we look at this, what we're seeing is this motivation. And, and I told you I'd revisit it because we get a description Of God, that I think is difficult to translate, obviously, because you look at any different translation and they use a different word pretty frequently. So it says God regretted making man in the ESV. NIV says he was grieved at making man. What we get in the sense of these things is that often we're trying to attribute our understanding of those things to God versus understanding how God sees these things. And so here's what we get. What we're getting is not a limitation of God's power or potency. This isn't a description of God's weakness or some sense in some way that God made a mistake. None of that is what the Bible is referring to here. What we're getting is a window into the compassionate heart of God. There is a level in which sin and the gravity of that sin has an impact on the heart of God you get this sense of compassion and sadness and grief that those who were created by God could move so far away from their creator that they don't even realize he exists anymore. And there's this sense, this this emotion, as best as the Bible can describe it, that is attributed to God, this grief that he experiences as to how man had gotten so far. But that he knew as well, that, that sin has that that impact it always takes us further than we want to go into places that we never should be and we're doing things we never thought we would do this is a treatise if you will on the human condition so it's certainly about noah and the flood it's a real historical reality but it also gives us a sense That even as Jesus looks back on that and is talking about the end of the age and the times in which things are going to be progressing, the human condition remains pretty similar. Man, without God, there's no end. There's no, everything is permissible if we're open to those things. And so, what the actions of God in the beginning of this story are to move us towards, what God is doing is he's acting to restore. The goodness that sin has destroyed so so that's the that's the the motives like god is god is the one initiating and moving in these things he's the one that's observing the condition of the human heart and they're just living as though nothing's really wrong they've got to the point where even their thoughts and intentions have no reflection of the character of god they're just thinking evil continually violence upon violence sin upon sin and it's not as though god is distant and unaware of those things. He's actively engaged and involved. And so he's the one who acts. It's not as though Noah comes to this situation and say, God, I'm a righteous man. Things don't look so great. It's terrible. Would you do something? God's the one that initiates this action and this movement. Why? Because sin is destructive and detrimental. It kills and destroys. So God moves and acts in the context of sin as it's running rampant and moves in in incredible and powerful ways. And so as we move into that, I love the reality, when we get the sense of of the impact that that sin has had in the world, the term that you get is sort of ruined or spoiled. The the image that Jeremiah uses, same word, Jeremiah 18.4, he says, you know, it's like a potter who's been making a pot, and the pot just crumples and is spoiled or ruined. And so the the potter has to refashion the pot. That's the image that we're getting here, is that this is not just about punishment and destruction. It's about recreation. It's about God restoring the goodness that has been lost because of the gravity of sin. So as we move in there, I want to move us to another uh, passage of Scripture just real quick. And it says Isaiah 54, because I think it gives us another indication of some of the emotions in the heart behind these things. Again, Isaiah the prophet communicating and drawing back on this story in Genesis chapter 6. So things were really bad. There was violence. Nobody cared about anything. There was no concern. Evil was continually taking place. And here's what Isaiah looks at when he looks back on that story as he's communicating to the people of god about the potency of god's work in their life listen to these words i love how he processes it and how he communicates it verse six for the lord called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit grief is the same word as regret in genesis 6 like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your god For a brief moment I deserted you, but with compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And now here's how Isaiah understands the story. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and will not rebuke you for the mountains may depart and the hills remove but my steadfast love shall not depart from you my covenant of peace shall be not be removed says the lord who has compassion on you so it's interesting to think about how even isaiah is moved by god to communicate about this story and here's the impact what does he highlight he highlights the significance of the grief that sin has caused and he uses this desperation of a wife that has been betrayed and felt isolated by her husband. There has been a moving away. She is alone and lost and feeling deserted. That's the impact of what sin has done. And in the context of moving that forward then, as, as Isaiah remembers the story of Noah and the flood, what does he remember? He remembers the the promise and provision of God in the context of intimacy. Here's what he tells them, right? As I think about the days of Noah, I swore to Noah that I would never flood the earth anymore. Like, I'm I'm a God who keeps my promises. And so here's what, as the people of God are hearing this and would be so familiar with the story, here's what he wants them to know. God is grieved over sin, but he's compassionately proactive in pursuing those who are sinning. Did you, did you hear that? Like uh, That needs to rest on us. Because often there's that place where he even gives us the description of this wife feeling deserted and isolated. And living out the consequences of this said betrayal. And yet this outside supernatural divine reality where God is filled with compassion. Is moving towards those moments without the expectation that those who have been deserted are moving towards him. There's an activity of God on behalf of those who are stuck and sinful and living in these terrible moments and these trials where evil seems to be reigning even in their own hearts. Whether it's addictions or challenges or struggles or fears or uncertainties, whatever that might be, it's in those moments that we enter into this story and we hear with utter regularity that God is moving towards us Have you ever felt that? I mean have you ever sensed the movement of God towards you? Well for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ certainly there was a moment in time where that was Unbelievably true, but that's not the only time There are those encounters and those Knowledge and that reality of God deeply moving towards us to draw us towards himself So what's the purpose of these 40 days, right? You get the rest of the story as we're going to move to verses 11 and 12 in Genesis chapter 6. But, but here's what you end up happening, right? You get this sense that Noah had walked with God. So Noah has been described as the only righteous one on the earth. And so God is preserving the righteous and judging the wicked. And in part, we look at that and that sort of makes sense to us. It seems to fit within the paradigm in which we look. But what's the 40 days? What's the trial that Noah is going under? If he's the righteous one, what possibly could be the test? I think what you get in this text is that as Noah is living righteously and obediently before the Lord, this trial, this test, is sometimes just about waiting on the unfolding plan of God. That that ultimately... What this is doing is reinforcing the character of God within Noah and his family about how God is going to work. And there is very little that Noah does, save build the ark, which I guess is a big deal. I mean, there's probably a lot of work associated with that. But, but building the ark and bringing the animals in, and, and then it, it just starts to rain. Imagine for a moment those 40 days. The raindrops begin to fall. The water begins to rise. And what do you do? You wait. There's no rudder on this ship. He's not steering it anywhere. God's not saying, get in this boat and go to this place. He's just waiting in the sense that God is going to make good on his promises. God speaks. He responds in the process of this trial of these 40 days and all of this judgment. And then the rain stops. And now it takes a little while for the waters to recede. And so, day after day, continues to realize that it's no longer raining, but he can't get out of the boat yet. And yet still, there's this knowledge, or at least this sense, that God is still working and going to make good on his promises. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that sometimes, for us, in our trials that we face, some of it could be just waiting on God to make good on his promises. You have a God who is compassionate, who is actively pursuing us as his people, sharing and showing his steadfast love to us in innumerable and remarkable ways. And in the context of those things, sometimes our response is to wait and to trust. Look at me, if you will, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, and here's what he says. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and beheld it was corrupt, and all flesh was corrupted in their way. So there was just nothing good that was taking place. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he tells him to make the ark. So there's this knowledge that not only is God compassionate towards his people... But I also need you to know that he's pretty serious about sin Like it's a big deal And I think for us and I think just like I said before sin always shows you the bait and never the hook There is that sense that all of us have that tendency To minimize the gravity of our sin to compare our sin with the sin of others To think that we're better than someone else and less in need of the rescuing Compassionate grace of god and yet this story, if it rivets us at all, is riveted on the reality that our human condition, we have more similarities with the people who are living life to their own desires than we do with Noah. There's just a tendency in our own human hearts. But like I said at the beginning, this story is a tale of two hearts, the heart of God and the heart of man. And so here's where we go next. It describes Noah as walking with God. This isn't proximity. It's not an issue of they're just close. It's about intimacy. The image is one where they're sort of shoulder to shoulder. There's an attachment of the relationship that exists between both of them in serious and significant ways. The part of that is that now we realize that there's a difference between walking with God and being God. Let me explain. So this story is sort of a prelude. Right? We are fairly comfortable at times with God punishing those who are unrighteous. Yes, story of Jonah. We see evil in the world, and we want God to do something about it. And in the context of those things, we, we start to grow a level of comfort with this sense that God is just, except when it has to deal with our own sin and our own faults and our own frailty. In the process of those things, we begin to understand that what happened in the story of Noah is God punished the wicked to save one righteous. Correct? The story of the gospel is that God punished one righteous to save all the wicked. That the cross itself is the dispensing of the wrath of God against sin, and it's dispensed on God Himself. Because sin always has consequences. It always kills. It always destroys. And so the contrast between the story of Noah and the flood and even Good Friday and, and Easter and beyond is the sense that God would destroy, pours wrath out on the one righteous to save the wicked. Does that not then begin to generate a reality of what God is doing in our life? As he starts to poke and broaden each of our hearts about those areas of sin that are leading us away from him. It's not to quench our joy or to mess with our lives. It's to save us from utter destruction. It's to preserve us and to grow us in a desire for intimacy for himself. That ultimately the value is to value the work of the Lord and the Lord himself. Many of you have heard throughout the context of, of life that you'll face any trial and God will always make a way. I'd like to suggest that maybe there are times that God doesn't make a way. I'd like to suggest to you that God is the way. Every time. John 14, which Trent led this morning, says it very clearly. I'm the way the truth and the life no one come to the father but through me the goal in the midst of all of the trials and the challenges that we face in the context of life if we're just looking big picture is that you and i would experience the intimacy with god that is so much more significant and so much more valuable than any temporary satisfaction that sin might offer and the only way that that is possible is that the one righteous died on our behalf He died, he took our place. He was the one that actually allowed us to have intimacy with God, that the the righteous was killed so the wicked could experience a relationship with God forever. There's a difference between walking with God and being God. God stood in our place so that we could walk with God. Let me just finish up with this because there's another New Testament passage that I think really lends itself to understanding the impact ...of this story. If you will, jump to 2 Peter chapter 2. Towards the end of the Bible... ...Peter talking to... ...those who have been dispersed and... ...dealt with innumerable suffering. So they're being persecuted for their faith. faith. They're dealing with infinite amounts of challenges. And look how Peter... ...inspired by God... ...understands the story of Noah and the flood... Second Peter chapter two, verses four through ten. For God, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to change of gloomy darkness, to keep until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by sensual conflict of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Look at verse 9. Then, the Lord who knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment... And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, bold and willful, they did not or do not tremble as they blasphemy the glorious ones. Verse 9 is the key part of this whole text. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Here's what I want to submit to you this morning. The story of Noah is about a reality of a compassionate God drawing people to himself. And as... Jesus reflects on it about the end of the age There's a gravity and a seriousness That we need to take about the sin Not only that surrounds us but really the sin That's within us That there is a sense in which the starting Point is realizing how deeply And dark our souls Really are outside Of the saving grace of Jesus Christ We are in desperate need Of his rescuing mercy And the promise that he tells us in 2 Peter Is that God knows how to rescue The godly when he says godly, what he means is that those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not about performance or behavior modification. It's not about, hey, be a better person, and then your trials won't be so hard. It's about a reality of what God is communicating to us about valuing what God values. And what does God value? Well, he values his glory, and apparently he values a relationship with his creation. That he's a God who's filled with compassion and moves towards us even when we don't even know how to move towards him. In the hardest moments of life, there are times where we walk through trials. And sometimes those trials are dealing and exposing, like with Jonah, areas of brokenness in our own heart. Sometimes the trials are just waiting for us to see the fullness of the provision of God in the most amazing of ways. Where we know who God is and whether we feel it or not, We're trusting that that compassionate, steadfast, loving God is actively drawing us to himself. And I'll submit to you this morning, there's no better place to be. Because why? God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So let's trust him. What do you say? You in? I'm in. Let's pray.